Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 148. Well, just ahead, how one contract manufacturer seems to be navigating supply chain issues with a big help from Apple. And energy company Holly Frontier moves profitably from refining oil to refining renewables. And taking the philosophy of Shopify to the cannabis market. Yes, Weed Maps is a lot more than Weed Maps. It's WM Technology, and we've got CEO Chris Beals in a fascinating conversation. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And to make sure you don't miss this show when it drops, Click the subscribe button on any of your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, you name it. But hit the subscribe button to make sure you catch every show. And the drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down. We'll be drilling down on a number of companies today. We're going to be telling you the business stories, not just the moves of the stocks who rely on those businesses to succeed, to get those stocks up. Joining me as always, executive producer, Isaac Webster. Isaac, how are you? Corey, I'm really well. How are you doing up there in San Francisco? Living the dream. Living the dream as always. Uh, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Jabil. Jabil. Jabil, Jabil. Is it Jabil? Jabil. Jabil? JBL is what it trades under. Shares have risen over 21% in a year, vastly outperforming the broader market. Yeah, so JBL is a company that people in technology have looked at for a long time because they are a contract manufacturer, ostensibly based in St. Petersburg, Florida, not to be confused with St. Petersburg, Russia, which are different places, different weather. Thank you for pointing that out, For example. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to go with the less historic St. Petersburg, Florida, when it comes to weather. In any case, uh, J-Bill um, is a company that is a contract manufacturer. They have two big businesses um, uh, in contract manufacturing, those being electronic manufacturing, making electronic here, and diversified manufacturing services where they're uh, contracting to develop um, uh, to tools used to make uh, big things like automobiles and sometimes even contracting to make the automobiles themselves. A very interesting company because you get a sense of sort of what is happening in terms of broader economic and GDP development, just how much stuff is getting made. And of course, what's going on in the world of technology and the ability 
right now, right, what are we watching more than anything in tech is the ability to get semiconductors, the ability to make electronics gear. Well, these guys out with a, a fourth quarter that was really strong reporting results that showed a 10.5% increase in revenues to $7.6 billion. Um, and in particular, they did really well in their uh, electronic manufacturing services business. So again, I said they have two businesses, diversified manufacturing, that was up 4% year over year, but electronics manufacturing up 19% year over year. And the biggest business they have is Apple, making those iPhones, making those MacBooks, iPads, and so on, and AirPods. Let's not forget our AirPods. Never. I, actually, they probably like it when you forget AirPods because you have to go out and get more. Yeah, or your dog chews them up in my case and I have to get more. Uh, in my case, I, they fell out of my pocket. They popped out in the driveway. One uh -huh. did a double bounce down the gutter. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Kid you not. Watch the I, thing disappear. I've saved mine from a few of those moments, just uh, just by the hair of my chinny chin chin. Solid excitement with the bouncing AirPods. In any case, uh, that's <laughs> all been good business for J-Bill, announcing a pretty strong quarter. And uh, in a when asked during their conference call, you know, what worries? A, a question I worked with someone once who used to ask CEOs, keeps you up at night. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, God, can you please come up with a better question? But That's a great a question, man. It, it usually you get lots of good it, answers with that question. You get good answers. It's a terrible question, but you get good answers. Maybe that's the purpose of a question, right? Um, and the CEO, Mark Mondello, was asked a similar question on the conference call. And he cited Ukraine and talked about the war and offered great sympathy uh, for the tragedy taking place in Eastern Europe. But then went on to talk about, you know, what really worries him in his business. And interestingly... It wasn't supply chains. So I, I, I would say uh, uh, supply chains, we, 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 we tend to uh, uh, navigate that as good as anybody at the moment. Does that give me concern through the rest of the fiscal year? Maybe um, uh, a collapse in the macro in the very near term, not so much. Uh, inflation, I think we're managing that quite well. And I would say, um, I, I don't know, um, you know, there's been a dust up here recently with um, with uh, some more COVID issues in mainland China. And um, Rupla, I would say we've been dealing with that um, literally like firsthand since uh, uh, the issues in Wuhan in, in January of 2020. And when I think about our campuses in places like Wuxi and Weihai and Wangpu and Shenzhen and Shanghai and Tianjin and Chengdu, uh, we got a great team over there. Uh, uh, we've been we've been navigating that quite well. So, um, as we as we think about the balance of the year and maybe first part of 23, um, as I sit today, as we sit today as a management team, we got pretty good confidence in in the guide for the balance of the year and and the uh, and the beginning outlook for 23. So I don't know what to call those worries, Isaac. I think it just sounds like confidence. These guys are just confident in their ability to manage issues and on others to manage other issues like COVID. Um, and so I think that they really think that their, their year is going to be strong. Uh, and, and that probably bodes well, since it's such a broadly diversified company, probably, bo probably bodes well for the rest of technology and the rest of business. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Holly Frontier. Holly Frontier trades under Dino, D-I-N-O. 
Shares have fallen almost 14% in a year, right now trading around $33 after hitting a high back in January of 2022, this year of almost 50 bucks. Yeah, and so um, uh, so 50 to 33, not great, but uh, actually the company's had a great uh, bounce in recent weeks, um, Holly Frontier has. You mentioned the ticker Dino. In some places it trades under HLF. I haven't figured out why that is the case, but uh, whatever you call it, Holly Frontier has changed uh, uh, its business, really. So this is, it's it's a very interesting company. It's got three parts to it. Refining, so oil and gas, right? So refining and lubricants, those kind of go together. That makes sense. Uh, lubricants and specialty products. And they've got a, a business called HEP, which is um, Holly Energy Partners, which is 57% owned by Holly Frontier. One could also go out and buy shares of Holly Energy Partners. Holly Energy Partners is a MLP, a Master Limited Partnership, which essentially, uh, kind of like in real estate, a REIT will kick off most of its profits to its investors. An MLP and Holly Energy Partners will do that as well. So this company gets a lot of the benefit of the business of Holly, Holly Energy Partners um, and into their top line where the, where the expenses sit on a different balance sheet or different income statement, I should say. Um, but refining, lubricants and specialty products, and Holly Energy Partners, the refining business is super interesting to me right now because um, Holly Frontier, while they had uh, warned early in the year that they might have limited oil uh, output, their, their RDUs, the renews, renewable diesel units, which is essentially barrels of, of renewable diesel, um, they have been transferring their business of, of refining oil into a business of refining soybean oil and other a renewable feedstocks to make renewable diesel. They expect to have production capacity of 120 million gallons a year um, uh, of this, this renewable diesel. Who is um, using renewable diesel? Uh, uh, certain uh, diesel vehicles to trucks, really. Okay. Um, and and it's, it's a super interesting business. It also helps them fulfill some requirements in the law to right. either make renewables or buy renewable credits. So they, they took, for example, their Cheyenne, Wyoming refinery, which was not very profitable for them, completely and permanently shut it down from petroleum refining to convert it into uh, the refining of RDUs, or renewable diesel units. Um, and so this is a, a, a big business for these guys, and they expect it to be a, a big growing business and also lowering their tax bills. And what they announced in their most recent uh, quarter um, was a, a very uh, uh, much more speedy turnaround in this process of going from oil um, to re renewables. And therefore they're, they're out of the business of, of redoing a refinery and in the business of having a profitable product come out of it that will also, by the way, lower their tax bill. Now I will say, I think it's a little disingenuous to talk about this in gallons. Now maybe it's gallons because we think about that they sell it in gallons, but you know, whenever you see uh, an oil spill and they talk about how many gallons it comes out, it's so exaggerated because a barrel of oil is what we usually think of oil as, which is 42 gallons. So it's kind of ridiculous. So if these guys are talking about 120 gallons, if I do the math in my head here for barrels. Um, that's about, I don't know how many, so 120 gallons is about four barrels. So 120 million is about 4 million barrels or 3.4 million barrels. Still, a substantial amount of renewable diesel coming out from this company. Uh, and there's it's more to come. Yeah. It's, 
It's a start, and they they say, well, first half won't be a big deal. They're going to see a lot of cash generated from this business in the second half of the year. Here's Holly Frontier's CEO, Rich Voliva. Um, we expect to see renewables really delivering um, on the income statement, the cash line in the second half of this year. Obviously, as we ramp things up through the first half, we're not going to see a lot of cash generated there. Um, uh, we clearly expect our refinery performance to be significantly better starting with the second quarter, uh, which will clearly generate a lot of cash, both from earnings as well as a recovery in working capital. And so that gives us the comfort around the dividend in the second quarter. So the stock, even at uh, today's uh, somewhat elevated price, with you know, the stock having risen about 20% in the last week or so, um, it's still paying about an 8% dividend. And the suggestion there's more cash coming um, could be interesting to, what if, to see what it means for their dividend in the future of 2022. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, uh, this company is called Car Auction Services, and sadly, they spell car like cars for kids. With a K. K-A-R, Auction Services. Why sadly? I love it. I hate those commercials. I love those commercials. They get stuck oh, in my God. head. I can sing them all day long. Talk about an earworm. Don't do it. <laughs> um, and they don't update those commercials either. Um Car Auction Services trades under KAR. Shares have climbed almost 15% a year, steadily climbing back after hitting $9.50 back in April of 2020, now trading near 19 bucks. So a double. Pretty much. Pretty much. We like a double. Um, 100% gain is a a good gain to have. Um, A double in almost two years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So this is a really fascinating business. Um, It's about a, a billion dollar business. Uh, in terms of uh, market cap, um, they help uh, companies sell cars. They help companies like CarMax sell cars. They are they act as an intermediary between large dealers, manufacturers, Tesla. When your Tesla comes off lease and Tesla wants to get rid of it, they go to car auction services and car auction services auctions these things off in size to the online and sometimes the offline manufacturers or offline sellers of used cars. Um, at great volume. In 2021, they did 2.6 million used cars. The U.S. probably sold fewer than 10 million cars last year. The numbers aren't out yet. Uh, for 2020, there were 10.3 million used cars sold. We know that 2021 saw a lot fewer. And yet these guys did 2.6 million. So a big buyer and seller of used vehicles that you've never heard of because they don't operate facing consumers at all as a business business Company. They also have ancillary services like transportation, inspections, uh, titling. Um, and interestingly, they used to do reconditioning, but they announced this deal. Carvana came to them and said, Hey, we want to buy your physical auction business, the lots that you've got all over the country, the reconditioning facilities that you've got all over the country. We want to buy them. We'll pay you $2.2 billion. Now, Car auction services, even as recently as December, was boasting about this physical business when talking to investors. But Carvana walks in, it's about $100 million in annual in EBITDA for these guys, about $100 million in operating profit for this physical business. Carvana walks in and says, we'll give you $2.2 billion for it. And so this company is like, what? For a $100 million a year? Sold. Done. There you go. Deal over. 
Wow. There was no auction process. There was no competitive bidding. There were some conversations and the deal was done. And all of a sudden these guys get $2.2 billion right back from Carvana. They completely restructure their debt. So their debt uh, profile is much different than it was a year ago, even a few months ago. Um, the stock has gone kind of straight up since they made this announcement. Um, and while they did have this off-premises model for reconditioning where a car might come in a little bit beat up, they would fix it up, they would keep it on their lot until a dealer or even an online dealer was ready to sell it. For what they got for the business, they they ran, did not walk out of that business. Uh, and they have other businesses where they like their online business, Open Lane, where they're seeing a lot of vehicles come and go really quickly at elevated prices only expecting things to get better later in this year when we actually see more inventory come on. They think they're in a better position for this, uh, and they think they're going to be the number one com company in the country doing online business-to-business -business vehicle auctions. Here's CEO Peter Kelly. One of the aspects of the off-premise model is that, you know, reconditioning is not part of the services offered. Um, so I don't see a massive need and i don't see us you know building out reconditioning facilities to deliver that for our customers um, i think the majority of vehicles if, again as i mentioned to say on open lane some sellers selling 90 percent of their vehicles through that platform in the in the past 12 months uh, none of those vehicles are reconditioned uh, so dealers will buy them and, and do the reconditioning at their own facilities and, and obviously some flow to physical auction where they can be reconditioned there so that's not a business we're going to be in uh, in the United States uh, after this transaction. Um, but we think the market opportunity is, you know, massive in spite of that, let's just say. All right. So, you know, the, the used car business, uh, very interesting. The principal um, uh, villain in rising inflation. Um, we'll see what that means for this business going forward. But these guys are certainly bullish about the volumes that they're going to do, especially having unloaded uh, this this uh, uh, physical business of theirs to pay down a lot of debt. All right, coming up next, we're going to look at the cannabis business with a really interesting company that was once was just a map of places to buy weed. Weed Maps is now WM Technology, looking a lot more like the Shopify of cannabis. We'll talk to CEO Chris Beals. But first... The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down podcast. As promised, we have the CEO of uh, uh, MPS Technology, Chris Beals joins us. Um, it's better known perhaps under the retail brand of Weed Maps. Uh, Chris, glad to have you on. As the name of your of your subsidiary would suggest, we're going to talk about the cannabis business, which Great is a, a fascinating business that I frankly didn't follow until the last year or so because it just seemed, you know, it's, it's not of particular interest of me and it seemed kind of nuts, Wild West-like. And I was right. It is nuts and wild west like, and I've missed a great story. You guys have been at it for a long time under the the Weed Maps name, uh, uh, thirteen years. Fourteen, actually. Yeah, 14 we, we just clicked clicked over. Yeah. So uh, and so, WM Technology. Why go with the name WM Technology instead of Weed Maps? Is that because you're trying to emphasize the 
SaaS portion of your business? You know, it, it, so it's so it's look. There's at the at the core, Weed Maps is the largest marketplace for cannabis goods out there, and then we have an accompanying sort of portfolio of what I call power SaaS power tools that go along with the marketplace. Think uh, Shopify type e-com embed, CRM software, uh, delivery logistics to manage all the compliance with driver tracking that's required. And so, you know, I think the WM technology name was uh, one reflective of the fact that we, we, we are a, a very hardcore tech company at, at, at our heart. And separately, I think also just the fact that sort of the, the weed maps marketplace, while a very sort of a critical central part of our business is is just that it's a part of our business it's not the entirety of the business and so that that was the reason for sort of the parent company uh naming so you guys uh what is the business fundamentally describe it to our listeners who aren't familiar with it what what, what business problem are you trying to solve so look at its core it's a marketplace and so the big problem we're trying to solve is you have a incredibly complex essentially pharmaceutical good in cannabis and to help people shop it, you need a ton of data, which we harvest from POS systems and integrations with brand catalogs, that sort of thing, that are going to help consumers find, browse, shop, discover cannabis, which is for all intents and purposes, sort of a, a pharmaceutical good. And, um, and and every single state, due to sort of uh, this state-by-state regulation or legalization system, is, is you know basically a completely different country or how you'd think of a, new, a different country in any other jurisdiction. And so we're taking all of these complex lenses in terms of how consumers want to shop for and find cannabis and doing a bunch of data normalization and shopping to make a highly transactable marketplace experience for them. Along with that, we then have what I referred to earlier, this WM business, which is the suite of power tools. So um, those are very heavily compliance focused. The, the laws and regs vary from state to state. And I could spend a long time talking about that. But that's, you know, like I mentioned, CRM, once we, in, once we ingest and normalize all of your data and make it transactable, we have a, so what's called WM Store, which is a Shopify type e-com plugin. So you empower uh, commerce, e-commerce on your website. Uh, and then there's sort of a, a suite of other solutions, but to, to bucket it up, it's sort of power tools that go along with the marketplace. Sure. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll get to that a little bit. A marketplace, typically, whether it's the New York Stock Exchange or eBay, or our beloved advertiser Brain Trust, uh, creates the opportunity for commerce by sitting in the middle of transactions, which is our buyers and sellers. New York Stock Exchange, both buyers and sellers, transact through the New York Stock Exchange. On eBay, the buyers and sellers who look very different than the New York Stock Exchange uh, customers are buyers and sellers transacting in eBay. At Brain Trust, you have uh, and I, pardon me for humping our advertisers, but uh, and, and our good friends, but but they have a business where on one side you have high end technical freelancers, and on the other end blue chip companies that are looking to employ people on a contract basis they couldn't find otherwise. Now they take varying degrees as a middleman, as a marketplace. You guys take nothing, yeah, basically, or in terms of transaction volume and so on. Yeah, and and also on top of that, we solve a far harder problem. The average cannabis retailer carries over 400 SKUs, and we uh, dozens of SKUs turn over on a daily basis in any one of these businesses. And separately, you know, if you think about the cannabis consumer, twice as many people report shopping by clinical effect as by brand. We do a bunch of hardcore data machine learning work to take a bunch of low quality POS and other data sources, uh, proprietary consumer reviews. POS 14, in this case does not mean piece uh, of shit. Yes, point of, <laughs> point, of, point of sale. Or maybe in but, some cases both. 
<laughs> right, right. And it, well, yeah, they, they aren't always great on, on the data end. And we're solving problems by gluing all of that together, adding the largest trove of first party data to do uh, transaction data, to do personalization. And and we're doing what, frankly, is flummoxed the Amazons and others of the world, which is how you take you know a bunch of data from disparate sources and match like product to like product. So not only are we a marketplace that's not charging anything right now, we're, we're solving a generally far harder data and integration and compliance issues than most market, any marketplace out there right now. But yeah, due to uh, federal prohibition, the one thing that differentiates us as a marketplace, even though we drive you know billions of dollars of transactions, is we can't put payment rails in because there's federal banking prohibition. Um, and so, you know, all those orders that flow through and are placed are basically charge on delivery or charge on pickup. Um, and so we're, we're a unique marketplace. And, and another uh, aspect of that is, you know, we can't put a take rate or percentage fee on those transactions that are moving through the marketplace. And that's something that's really exciting for us on the other side of federal legalization or, or banking reform being passed. Which has gotten so close. My goodness, it got so very close a couple months ago. And perfect became the enemy of the good there, I think. Yeah, I could, you know, we I mean, have you're a, a lawyer. So I know this is, yeah. this is, you're a lawyer well, and CEO of the top of this. Well, well and we now. have, and we have, you know, about a, a 20 person policy team. So we've actually written a lot of the laws and regs in these different states. And so, so we do a lot with federal legalization. So that's another topic I could go on for, for hours about, but yes, I think. And I won't let the, you. Yeah. The prospects List, of federal listeners, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. The prospects of federal legalization soon are, are low, I would say. Oh, interesting. Um, Cause like I said, it didn't seem like that was close, I guess. Uh, uh, that's a, that is a whole other discussion. So let's, let's get back to your business. So you've got what could have been a great business if you could charge for it, but you can't, mm-hmm. which sounds very altruistic of you, but it doesn't sound like a great business. Um, so you're selling these other tools that sort of necessitates the need to sell the other tools, the software as a service tools I mentioned before. Well, yeah, so they're selling the software as a service tools, but then there's something else we can do, which is we can effectively sell advertising or more prominent placement, whether it be in certain discovery pathways or on certain services to the businesses, the retailers, brands, doctors, delivery services that are on in the marketplace. Um, You know, not not coincidentally, that is the uh, most rapidly uh, or sorry, the fastest uh, growth area of Amazon's revenue right now is doing something similar. And so there's there's spiritual similarities there. I think the difference is, is that there's a lot more complex discovery pathway. And so there's a lot uh, of different ways that we can present sort of promoted retailers or brands to consumers within that marketplace. Well, let me suggest also the different, there are a few differences between your company and Amazon. Um, uh, I care about your company more today than I do Amazon. That's one. No one cares well, about that one. Well, thank you. Um, uh, the, the one that I uh, uh, that strikes me, though, is that the limited ability, and you cite this in the risk factors in your 10K, the and your S1s or whatever, the SPAC equivalent, right? All of that. There is a limited number of businesses, limited by state. Florida, for example, limited, I think, to 20 um, dispensaries um, mm-hmm. in one of the biggest states in the country. And there's only so many customers you can ultimately have on the selling side. And if, if listing revenues are part of that, that's a limit, a big limit for you. Well, the, the me, nice me, thing is when you have throw a, in one more, sorry, I know our yeah. listeners are sick of hearing long questions. Um, the other problem, of course, is that there's been a collapse in pricing uh, in the cannabis business, uh, from what I understand, and that, that can't be good for the uh, the distributors and the, and the the sale of those products. 
Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. One is um, the, 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 in a marketplace, the sort of variable factor that you're trying to optimize for is GMV. It's how many transactions are, are going through. And, um, Gross marginalized so, value, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. And so the, the issue there actually is um, that the limited number of retailers and, and the number of retailers continues to increase as a factor of time to go up and to the right um, for the reason I'm about to say now, which is the, num- the, the biggest issue with a low number of retailers is you're going to outsize the illicit market. So on average, across all the jurisdictions that are legal and where we service customers, you're generally averaging about a 70 to 80% illicit market take rate. So about 70 to 80% of all consumer cannabis demand in legalized states in the US is met on the illicit market. And the single biggest contributor to that is low retail density. States that have uh, a, a more uh, or a larger number of retailers have a much lower illegal California. market rate. Uh, well, Oklahoma is actually the best example. You Oklahoma, have 2,800 well, 2, retailers for 3.8 million people. Um, and worst but, example for pricing, right? Well, you know, here's the funny thing is that, is that uh, while margins can tighten and it can get become more competitive, it's still a very lucrative business for, for business owners in Oklahoma. It's just at a different level of scale. I think the the early days of the cannabis industry were marked by sort of these large operators saying, well, we're going to get one of 20 golden tickets. And, and that's our, our uh, guaranteed right to print millions of dollars a month in sales. And what we're finding is, is that if, if you get to about one retailer per 10,000 people, it's still a very lucrative uh, industry where people differentiate themselves by being better at what products they stock, how they train their store clerks, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, it's not this sort of outsized uh, you know, monopoly money type oligopoly. Now, do you guys break down in your SEC filings the difference between the software as a service business and the listings business in terms of revenues? I, I, I in my quick cursory glance, I didn't see it. Certainly wasn't in your offering documents, but I wonder if it's in your. Uh, it would seem to me that those segments are super important because they're very different. Well, yes and no. I, I think actually the because in, in certain states, we're driving well over half of all cannabis transactions, I'd estimate. And so we have SaaS-like stickiness because of the power of our marketplace, basically how dominant we are. And businesses sort of continue to advertise there, appear there, uh, work to sort of use broader parts of our solution set because the marketplace is so powerful. And when you think about return on ad spend or how much they're spending to appear there or efficiency of using our software – you know, we're blowing any other option kind of out of the water. And so it, it's interesting. We, you know, the marketplace and the, the the suite of business software have a very symbiotic relationship. We're sort of better users of that business software can achieve higher returns on the marketplace and vice versa. It seems that uh, a lot of the growth has certainly seemed in your, in your SPAC filings predicting the future of the company, that a lot of the growth would come from the listing business, which is, you know, the, what you call the marketplace where, where the company, the store goes online and the customer tries to find the store by going online through all through your marketplace, that that's the, the Trojan horse of selling a lot more um, technology to the stores, the dispensaries. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, so that is part of it, but there's a bi-directional lock-in. So businesses that are, are using the the logistics and delivery software are getting uh, higher customer satisfaction, which leads to higher reorder rates. Uh, businesses using the CRM are more effectively able to retarget not just any cannabis consumers, but potentially uh, sub cohorts or sub segments. And we can help with that with our personalization Such data. As uh, so, for instance, people. 
Actually, it's actually hard to do segmentation on sort of raw lines like that. Sort of, uh, you get a pretty even statistical distribution, but I'm, I'm talking about getting down to you're running a deal or a special on edibles. How do you get to people who are looking for, who are edible shoppers? Uh, very hard to do. And there's nothing that really exists to do that in the industry. It's where we're starting to leverage our first party data or potentially somebody who is uh, price conscious, high, you know, high value customer, high repeat uh, transaction rate and high average transaction value. How do you target that cohort of people with, for instance, a, a loss leader type vape deal or something like that? Um, and so there's really this symbiotic relationship where businesses that are using the marketplace generally are going to gravitate towards using the business suite. And conversely, you know, businesses leveraging the business suite are getting higher ROI out of the marketplace. It's super interesting. I, uh, I don't get high, but I um, went to a dispensary recently. I had a, I had a, I really, I, I, my knee got screwed up. I, I had a sore muscle problem. It was, it was, I could, nothing could seem to make a better massage, acupuncture stretching, whatever friend suggested CBD. I was like, all right, CBD. So I went to get a CBD balm and it was a fascinating study in people to see who was at that store. Um, it was, it was interesting. Um, but the, uh, uh, and the product didn't work to end mm-hmm. the story. Uh, uh, the, the acupuncturist suggested Arnica gel cleared up a two week problem in about two days, but wow. it was fascinating. I, I saw that I was a very different kind of customer in that place than the typical customer, but there was a, there were definitely some different types of cohorts, if you will. Oh yeah. I mean, look, one of, one of the, 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 the most valuable assets we have is 14 years of first party transactional data. There's nothing that exists out there and starting to unleash that with uh, personalization to consumers that makes them more, them more likely to transact with when they're within the marketplace. And we can do that automatically, but then letting these businesses, these brands, these retailers reach the right cohort of consumers. If you're a new cannabis brand, we're seeing an explosion in the number of cannabis brands. How do you reach not just any cannabis consumer? Well, let's start with it being a high value cannabis consumer, somebody who consumes once a month or more. All right, check. We, we, we capture that. But how do you get to someone who is likely to purchase your product based on the attributes it has? We're, we're in the early stages of, of brands trying to form actual brand affinity among consumers. And is it, you know, from a monetization viewpoint, it's incredibly exciting for us. But frankly, what it could do to revolutionize the industry and move it forward, because you know, what you described is exactly what most people, whether they be new or old consumers experience, they go into a store, it's very confusing. And God forbid that they're looking for a specific clinical effect or to solve a specific condition. Generally, the store clerks can't really help them. The, the bud tenders can't really help them with that. They'll recommend yeah. what they like, but they don't know what's going to be effective for you. And we can solve that. It, it's a data issue and we can solve that. I think you see other companies, some companies trying to hit that from a different angle. I've got a friend who uh, as part of a business called Hashtoria. I think they're in Oregon and possibly Oklahoma, as you mentioned, where the, the barriers to entry are lower. And they're trying to go at it from a, um, a celebrity angle, right? So they've got Raekwon making a, a branded weed and, and uh, or I'm sorry, not, cannabis. They don't like mm-hmm. when I say weed, apparently. You, uh, but, but this notion of going after celebrities, going after things to bring the customer in as opposed to sort of knowledge of who that customer is. Yeah, well- Look, here's the interesting thing. I mean, when we, we do a bunch of work to optimize the marketplace and surveying consumers and that sort of thing, one of the most surprising things in one of our most recent surveys was half of consumers can't name a favorite brand. That's not to say they don't, they are, they're, they're not saying they don't have a favorite brand. They just can't name a, a brand that they would say is their favorite. And, and 
that really underscores, I think, how early we are on, on, on sort of the cycle and, and how much work there's to be done to sort of make this complex pharmaceutical good transactable online. I mean, that's the core of what we're solving. The, the celebrity piece is, is complex because, again, if you're consuming it based on quality or based on how it's going to clinically affect you or the, the, the terpene and cannabinoid content, which these are, you know, yeah, the, yeah. some of the most common lenses through which people shop, a celebrity endorsing it doesn't really answer those questions for consumers. And so I think that's why we've seen celebrity brands traditionally struggle or one of the reasons we've seen them traditionally struggle. Well, but I would, I would argue that, that therein lies the problem for your business or the challenge for WM Technologies, right? Which is that if you don't have the scale that national sales could have, you can't have a Budweiser, right? You can't have a brand that good or bad means the same thing everywhere or McDonald's or Coca-Cola, whatever. It's the same product wherever you get it and you can market around that brand. You're limited by the places you can sell it. You're limited by your ability to bring it across state lines. You're limited, therefore, in the um, the amount of revenues and, therefore, the marketing budget for each product because of those things, number one. And number two, you're limited by the things that limit agriculture flat out, which is seasons, production, crop, you know, the, of the crop. So you can't get to that scale, it would seem to me, in this industry right now. And you can't ever get to that level of knowing what you're getting and know, having the brand name known. Seems like a struggle. Well, I, I'd actually argue quite the opposite. I think this is actually one of the Ooh, most like exciting but underappreciated elements of, of our business and what we can do. So if you're a big multi-state operator, an MSO, as you say, and your footprint is 20 different states and you want to deploy a $10 million budget to reach new consumers or educate them on a new brand, which, yes, is being produced in 20 different individual states and different supply chains. But you need to reach consumers in those different places. You need a scaled technology or sorry, a scaled marketplace like ours, which has the technology underpinning it that lets you sort of deploy that budget and reach the right folks in all of the different states and, and sort of educate them. And so it, frankly, uh, we're, we're very agnostic to the form in which federal legalization takes, because if you stay with these fragmented state by state sort of uh, vertically integrated supply chains, you need a platform like this to be the normalization layer. So if I'm a consumer and I was in Connecticut and now I'm in New York or I'm in Florida or wherever, you, you go, we're the go-to place to understand, well, what is being sold there? What, what do the consumer say? And separately, if you have federal legalization that takes the shape of um, states opening up interstate commerce, which they currently seem very resistant to, same thing, but slightly different problem. You now want to sort of normalize and educate consumers everywhere of your your centralized brand, the quality of it, uh, and be able to compliantly do transactions in all the different states because every state is going to continue to have its own regulations for lab testing, even if it's centrally grown in Northern California or wherever. And so that's the great thing about being a technology solution in a highly regulated industry is we can use, you know, effectively ones and zeros to create homogeneity for the consumer, for the business, that sort of thing. And that's one of the things that most people don't, don't realize is it's incredibly complex and it's much easier to come at it from a technology lens, a central marketplace, a central suite of solutions that change state by state than to try and do it phys with physical operations. That's super interesting. I, I, I've, I've, I always wonder about the challenge of companies that do CRM solutions that are industry specific, as opposed to Salesforce, which has all the R&D being spent to build up the best seat. Well, now Salesforce has all the money being spent for acquisitions to keep that revenue top line growing, but Slack and so on aside. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that it, it does seem to be the, the, the other challenge, right? Is do you go for an industry specific solution that has a lot of those 
the bells and whistles that you need for your business, or do you go for Salesforce with those things plugged on top of it? A suggestion uh, for your company has, has uh, from uh, again, from your financial filings, has been that the big players just won't get involved because it's such a regulated and illegal business to be in for national big companies like Salesforce and, and presumably HubSpot that are thinking about CRM. Well, look, so actually the, the tough thing for them is every single state has its own track and trace system. They are tracking every piece of every cannabis product as it moves through the supply chain. Each new state we launch our POS in, and we integrate with almost 100 industry-specific POSs, that, that POS product has to have its workflows customized for the requirements of that state and separately has to integrate and be certified to integrate with that track and trace system. So if you purchase a piece of cannabis from a, a retailer in, say, California, they have to real-time GPS track their delivery drivers, but before that product even moves into the vehicle, the state track and trace system has to be updated to say, we are moving this cannabis product into this vehicle. That vehicle then needs to be real-time GPS tracked. Those logs retain for 90 days. Signature and signing authority, signature and sign from the end consumer, but separately if that consumer says, I don't want that product, or that was a misorder, the state track and trace system has to be re-updated as that product comes back into stock because that that has to sort of demarcate that you've returned the product back in or else the regulators are going to come and say you have product going out the back door. And so it's it's interesting. It's it's not just sort of a, a regulation writ large issue. It's the fact that the software has to be custom built. And I give you examples for CRM, obviously logistics software I just mentioned, the POS software, that's part of that handoff. Uh, taxation, how you handle folks. Uh, certain products can be sold to medical patients, but not adult use or recreational cannabis uh, folks. Uh, the tax rate can vary. The limits of what can be purchased can vary. The POS is generally the, where that rule layer appears that, that dictates that. And so I, I think at this point, it's, it is fairly clear that for these large players to come into this space, they're going to have to do it via acquisition. I think the the cost to sort of replicate that and sort of, frankly, the cost to do it compliantly and then try and switch out existing solutions would be enormous for almost any part of our technology wow. suite or even the marketplace. Yeah, it's, I think that's the other thing is you just don't, you don't realize until you, you really get in and start saying, well, how does this work in each of these states? And it's, it's wildly different systems and separately. It to does thwart- sound like all, it's, it sounds like the thing that's in common is that the re- every single piece of law and, co- and, and sent letter and sentence and, and of the law falls on the retailer, ultimately. And the brand. And separately, this is, again, where you want a technology solution. It's not just falling on anyone at the retailer. It's generally falling on your front of house or your dispatch staff. And so you have generally uh, lower educated employees. This is not falling on the senior management team who are where your compliance, you know, either either thrives or fails. And, and the stoners. I- ideally... Yeah. No, well, sorry. Be- <laughs> I, yeah, sorry. Sorry, stoners. No, no, no. It's, sorry, but, but look, sorry it's, non-stoner uh, dispensary employees listening to our show right now. Well, look, think, think about this in the alcohol space. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you had all these compliance steps to sell alcohol and you think about the average person working front of house at, at the local beer shop, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, ideally, you'd like the software to automatically handle that, especially if you want to scale and you have hundreds of of, of store clerks, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, and look, here's the other thing. The states are intentionally uh, making their regulations more disparate and more complex with each passing legislative cycle. Um, and in some cases, we, you know, they've directly confirmed it's because they want to thwart interstate commerce. If federal legalization came tomorrow, due to the dis- differing laws and regs, there is not one cannabis product in one single state that would be suitable for sale in another state. 
because of all of the different regs for packaging, labeling, uh, uh, serving size, uh, dosage, you know, form factor, all that other stuff. Crazy. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the growers in Vermont. Not a good place to grow weed. Um, Chris Beals is the CEO of WM Technology. Uh, we're so glad to have you on. What an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm glad we uh, you could spend some time with us. Uh, we will have a little bit more insight into the business of WM Technology when the drill down continues with the drill down bite. We're going to look at uh, just how much money this company makes with every single door that opens, every single customer they have. We've got some numbers on those revenues per customer when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And perchance your phone isn't nearby, you want to listen to The Drill Down, you can use your smart speaker by saying something like, Alexa, play The Drill Down podcast, and you'll hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, so Isaac, WM Technology, interesting and much more diverse business than the old name Weed Maps would suggest. Um, also interesting how many customers they have, nearly 4,800 customers at the end of the fourth quarter. But uh, uh, the revenue per customer, on a monthly basis, starts to get up there. It's, uh, you want to make a random guess? What, what do you think a dispensary pays uh, oh. WM Technology for their business for every every? God, uh, I really wouldn't month? know, but I want to say two grand a month. It is more than that. It's a lot more than that. Okay. Uh, it, uh, it, and it's been increasing. They averaged, here's your drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot, $3,789 a month. Okay. I wasn't too far off. From every one of their nearly 5,000 clients. So on an annual basis, it's a little uh, better than 45 grand uh, per dispensary. That's not bad. Which is an interesting business. And uh, it seems like their their real um, plan here is not to expect a big increase in the number of dispensaries that they serve, but rather more services for each one of those dispensaries so they can get that number customer uh, revenue per customer ticking up. I mean, a couple of takeaways from this interview. First, I want to say both of you seem to imply that the bud tenders at marijuana dispensaries are not knowledgeable in general and can't direct you to what to whatever might I have help you with an element experience in this. So. I have a lot of experience with this. So I um, as our listeners may have suspected, maybe who knows? I don't know, I don't know what you're implying. But it's legal. It's legal, so they can. I'm implying you know, that you sound wasted all the time. Okay. Well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this podcast if I'm wasted. So anyway, <laughs> the bud tenders in LA and whatever the dispensary, they have, in my experience, they've always been crazy knowledgeable. You go in there and tell them very specifically what acute problem you want the weed to potentially attack, and they know exactly what to direct you to. Try it out if you don't believe me. I see you smirking. It's so strange. But I'm sure that I'm Does sure that smirking is strange. Uh, no, you're always no, smirking. And you don't seem but stoned ever on the show, ever. I cover it well. Clear. But like, you know, also, so, you know, a uh, shout out to all the butt tenders out there. But the, this knowledge that um, Chris Beals has, the CEO, has of all the various state l- legal ramifications and the federal yeah. cloud um, over their business. I think that, that that's a very um, 
marketable knowledge that they have that I can't imagine that many people have that much of a grasp on. And it's going to be very useful to these dispensaries. Cloud. I see what you did there. You've been listening to the Drill Line Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson, Isaac Webster's our executive producer. Marijuana is legal. <laughs> like, there's no reason to have this weirdness about it. Not it's everywhere. Legal. Most places now. And not for everyone. Well, it will be eventually, so just relax. I don't think it's appropriate for small children, but okay, that's your call. It's not uh, legal for small children. And <laughs> no one's ben saying it is. Wilson. <laughs> they're, they're, what do you say, everyone? They're ones. Or in my case, in my household, there are many children. In any case, Ben. Go shake your fist at the sky, Corey. Go outside and just shake your fist at the sky. Ben Wilson (laughs) is our editor extraordinaire who chose to leave this wonderful banter in the show. We're grateful for that, too. We're grateful for you, our listener. The Drill Lens Production, the Business Podcast Network.